0: It's normal and natural for children to talk about their relationship with their fathers. A child's relationship with his or her dad can be a very special one, filled with rich memories, and for a majority of families, this is indeed the case. A father can be such an incredibly secure fixture in a young person's life. As I've mentioned to you before, I did not grow up in a Christian home, and I did not have the incredible benefit of having a relationship with my father. His name is Peter Quinn. My parents were divorced when I was four years old, and I have absolutely no contact with him ever since. And because at present I'm 44 years old, you can do the math. It's been 40 years. 40 years. I've had no personal knowledge or contact with him for all of those 40 years. For 40 years of my life, and his also, of course, because he was 30 years old at the time of the divorce, There's been no building of memories, no dialogue, no relationship. My memories of my dad are very faint. One such memory memory I do have some slight recollection of came back to me very, very clearly. It was when my sister and I, who is eleven months older than I am, and I were with him near the rushing current of a river, and I fell in. And I remember my sister yelling to my dad that I'd fallen in the water. And with my body and therefore my life future flowing downstream to certain peril, he jumped in himself, grabbed me and rescued me from death certain death. And that particular scene has just come back to me so suddenly yesterday because for the first time in forty years I I received a letter from my father. Through the amazing technology of the Internet I was recently made aware of his address by someone in my family who wanted to anonymously send him a copy of the new book that I co-authored with Curtis Thomas, my friend, called The Five Points of Calvinism, Defined, Defended, and Documented. And I agreed to this, and for the first time in four decades, he sent me a letter which I received in my box here at the church yesterday. He wrote in part these brief words to me. Lance. I received the book you co-authored and am in the process of reading it. It was not clear who sent the book, am just delighted it was sent. It is not my wish to intrude on your life. It is obvious you have succeeded in a great many ways without benefit of my counsel. I do pray that a dialogue might begin. For many years now I have repressed any hope of learning of your life and my heart has been hardened to the realization that I could not be a part of it. The bio brief in the book you co-authored speaks of your preparation for and engagement in meaningful programs of compassionate outreach. What greater calling can there be? In retrospect, I might have appealed to a higher court to remain in your life longer. You have remained in mine. As that boy who was drowning in a flooding stream. Oh, how you clung to me as I freed you from its clutch. All my memories of you are pleasant. Your one time dad, Peter. some reason, in the providence of God, when I read those words, that scene scene came immediately back to my mind, and I remembered it vividly, and I haven't thought about that for 40 years. I trust there will be some dialogue with Him. I want so much for Him to know Christ to make Christ known in the years He has left. I read this letter and tell you about my first communication with my father in forty years because it seems to me to be a perfect introduction to the dilemma which the Apostle Paul speaks of here in Romans 3 verses 9 to 20. Humanity, he states, is universally under the power of sin. Like a person rushing headlong down a fast-moving current of divine judgment and with the outcome of a most certain peril of death, we need a heavenly Father who alone has the resources to take our hand and rescue us from our plight. What is our plight as hopeless, helpless children who have plunged into the river of sin? Paul tells us in these verses. Verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, None is righteous, no not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. From Romans chapter 1 verse 18 all the way through this text that I have just read to you, Paul has been making the case that all humanity is under the power of sin. We are like children who have all fallen headlong into the raging current of the ravages of sin with no ability to extricate ourselves. We are totally and completely at the mercy of our Heavenly Father to rescue us from sin's clutches. But I want you to notice that it isn't simply that we have inadvertently fallen into the river of sin through no fault of our own. Paul says here that we are actively rebelling against God. Not merely a matter of our sinful state or condition. There is in us all, all humanity, both an inherent condition of sinfulness, but also our own volitional acts of sin which cause us to be alienated from our Heavenly Father. What Paul does here in Romans 3, 9 to 20 is essentially give us a three-part outline to the message. It's like a letter we could write today with an introduction, and then a body, and then a conclusion. That introduction is shown for us in verses 9 and 10, and the body of the letter is in verses 11 to 18, and the conclusion is in verses 19 and 20. Now, within the body of this letter, of course, is the heart of the passage, what he most wants to convey, and that supports Paul's argument that humanity is under the total domination and power of sin. He's saying it's like the whole of humanity has been plunged both by nature and by choice into the raging river of death which flows into the outlet of divine judgment in hell forever. And as we flow through this passage this morning, no pun intended, we'll see ourselves hopelessly and helplessly careening toward God's righteous wrath. Let's look at the introduction to this passage. We'll call it the pronouncement of our sinful condition, the pronouncement of our sinful condition. Verses 9 and 10. What then, Paul says? What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. As I said a moment ago, Paul has been endeavoring all the way from chapter 1 verse 18 to chapter 3 verse 8 to show that the Roman believers to whom he's writing are sinful. And he's making that case that all of us, including those to whom he writes, are utterly and totally depraved, and we are therefore unable to respond to God. Because of their sinfulness, because of our sinfulness, God is righteously going to inflict wrath upon all of us because He is holy and His just vengeance must be meted out to everyone who sins against that holiness. And that, of course, includes us all. For as He will say later in the chapter, in verse 23, all have sinned and therefore fallen short of the glory of God. Now in the immediate context of the verses that we covered last time in verses 1 to 8 of chapter 3, Paul's been dealing with the Jews of his day who refused to acknowledge that their sinfulness was equally to be judged as the Gentiles. I've mentioned to you several times that they obviously assumed that since they were God's covenant children, they weren't going to be in the judgment. The judgment upon mankind. And from chapter 2 onward, Paul has begun to divest them of any such notion. They are indeed, as the Gentiles, under the judgment of God, the very wrath of God. Their condemnation might even, as he subtly implies, I believe, maybe even a more stricter judgment, a more stricter condemnation. Why? Because they were the ones who had received God's divine oracles. His promises, His commands, promises of blessing, but they'd refused to obey God's law and were therefore under His wrath and curse because of the waste of their awesome privileges. For one final time, in this major section of Romans, from 118 to 320, we come to this last detail. And the question is still on the minds of some, no doubt, because Paul says, What then, verse 9? Are we Jews any better off? Does the Jew have an advantage over the Gentile? And it seems as though Paul's already made very clear in verses 1 to 8 what is the precise answer to that question. But he asks it one more time. Yes, he says in verses 1 and 2, they have an advantage if, they were to have acted on those spiritual privileges, but no advantage whatsoever has been gained by them because they disobeyed God's law and therefore they've squandered any spiritual privilege they may have had. So, he answers that question. Are the Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all Both Jews and Greeks, Greeks being a term for Gentiles, all non-Jews, all the pagans around the Jewish nation, everybody else in the world, he's saying, all Jew and non-Jew are under sin. Humanity under the power of sin. And in the final analysis, Paul says no one has any spiritual privilege over another. No one can claim any special place, any special right as over against any other person. Our problem, he says, is a sin problem. Our problem is that we are a humanity before God and we are all headed downstream to judgment with no special privilege, no advantage, even, and I might say, especially the Jews, without hope of rescue. And that's his pronouncement to them. It's our sinful condition. We're all under the power of sin. Do you remember in verse 18 of chapter 1, He's already told us this sad truth. Look at it, Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. He told the Gentiles in that... Succeeding section that God has clearly made himself evident to mankind by his divine nature, by his creation of the world, and that there is no excuse not to acknowledge him as God. They refused, however, amazingly, like a little boy floating downstream to his death, who then inexplicably spurns his father's outstretched arm of rescue. Believing that somehow he can save himself, but who has utterly no resources in which to do so. That's the true biblical picture. For even if we fall into the river of death, we don't want help. We think we can make it on our own. We think we have the resources within us to do the job, but we cannot. The current is too swift. The water is too raging. There's no way to do it. We're all like little boys trying to swim, trying to make it, trying to do what we can to be delivered from what we know is doom. And look at Romans 1, 28. It it says as much, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, the outstretched arm, the offer of the gospel, the proclamation of Christ. They did not see fit to acknowledge God. I don't want your hand to save me. Get out of my way. I'll do it on my own. How does God respond? All right then. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And that's the Gentile world. That's the pagan world. That's non-Christians, that's what they do. And the Jews as well, because in chapter 2, Paul says, you Jews, you're likewise under the power of sin. You too are careening down that path of destruction. And they could not assume that they had an adherence to God's law just by receiving the law. You have to do the law, he says. You can't assume that you have the heritage. You cannot say, well, I'm a son of Abraham. He'll save me from the river of sin. We're God's covenant people. And they looked at that as almost an automatic save from the river of judgment. Some kind of cinch life preserver when the waters of wrath are poured out upon mankind. We're in. What does Paul say here in Romans 3, 9? No, not at all not at all. Everyone, he says, is under the power of sin. And he contends elsewhere in this letter that mankind is under the dominion of sin, the slavery of sin. Look at chapter 5, verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many, that's all of us, were made sinners, Jew and Gentile alike. We're all cursed. In Adam's disobedience, look at verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, sin reigns in us. Look at chapter 6, verse 6, we know that our old man was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's what humanity is enslaved to, sin. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you. Verse 17, you were once slaves of sin. Verse 20, when you were slaves of sin. Sinners are under the dominion, the domination of sin's clutches. It's like a a torrent of water pulling you under its power and you have no capacity, no ability to withstand its force. I remember when my family and I took a vacation time, I was asked to speak in Toccoa Falls, Georgia, at Toccoa Falls College. And being at that college, We stepped into the bookstore, and I saw a book on the shelf that spoke of a major flood that happened with a body of water, Tocoa Falls, the dam that broke back, I believe, in the early 70s. And the college is below the dam in a valley-like area. It's a beautiful campus. But you would not have known it when that dam broke, And that flooding water came over that cascade into the college campus, onto it, and wiped it out. Several people lost their lives. There was nothing that they could do. And we actually bought a book in the bookstore and read that account to our family together. And what an apt analogy it is that when you are below the raging waters, there's nothing you can do. There is no way for those people to have responded and they plunged to their death. The force was too great. That body of water was so vast and that narrow corridor of the valley below was, was too small and the water flooded it and there was no way. There were buildings washed away, cars washed away, people washed away. But you know, there may be some people, doubtless, who would dispute that Paul is correct here in saying that all humanity is under the power of sin. And it's to that very assumption that Paul now turns from the pronouncement to the pervasiveness of our sinful condition. Look at verse 11. Here he talks about the pervasiveness of our sinful condition. Not just the pronouncement of it, but the sheer pervasiveness of it. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive the venom of asps is under their lips their mouth is full of curses and bitterness their feet are swift to shed blood in their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known there is no fear of god before their eyes and and just like a flood with a series of quotations from the old testament you notice there at the latter part of verse 10, as it is written, the first part, excuse me, as it is written. That's, that's signaling for us that there's a string of quotations that are going to come. And Paul shows that humanity is manifestly and characteristically unrighteous. This, by the way, is Paul's longest string of Old Testament passages ever quoted in one setting. And it's fitting, isn't it? To describe the characteristic nature of our depravity. You might say it like this, he wants to get his point across. He wants to make sure now that he's ending this entire section, section from 118 to 320 that we have it in our minds, both Jew and Gentile. It's almost as though he strings together all of these quotations and he wants to say by that, do you have it now? Do you have it? You understand what I'm saying? This is our condition. And I want you to notice all of the what I call 100% words, 100% statements, these universality words in this entire text, all in verse 9, all, none, no, not one, no one, no one, in verse 11, all. No one, not even one, in verse 12. Every mouth, the whole world, in verse 19. And no human being, in verse 20. That's a lot of 100% statements. That's a lot of universality there. All, none, no, not one, no one, no one, all, no one, not even one. Every mouth, the whole world, no human being. And then he structures these verses, I think, in, in three categories, or three ways, or three manifestations. Notice the structure. Verses 11 and 12 speak of mankind's total depravity as a characteristic of their beings. And then in verses 13 and 14, he speaks of their wicked words, the manifestation of their beings. And then in verses 15 to 17, he speaks not only of their words, but also of their actions, their doings, with verse 18 serving as a capstone statement. Let's look at it together, verses 11 and 12. None is righteous, he says, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. What an incredible way to begin with a series of unqualified statements from an almost, by the way, exact quotation from Psalm 14, verses 1 to 3. Paul intends to say that mankind is not righteous before God, not even one single individual. Not one. No one, he says, understands, and no one seeks after God. It's amazing to me how often you hear of that idea of those people who are developing their philosophy of ministry in a local church to do what they can to present the gospel to seekers. This text says no one seeks for God. Oh, it may be true that there are some who are seekers, but the only reason that they might be seekers is because who is seeking for them? God. God. Left to their own depravity, no one, Paul says, seeks for God. No one. No one understands. And he quotes Psalm 14 verses 1 to 3 to solidify that. And then he quotes maybe Psalm 53, 1 to 3, because it's virtually identical. Maybe he is quoting one or the other, we don't know. But apart from the righteousness of Christ, no one can stand before God with any merit on their own. No one can stand upright to God. That's his point. All have turned aside. Having become worthless, he says, with no one doing good, not even one. It could be that the first line of verse 10 in his description of man's general wickedness, none is righteous. No, not one. Maybe that's from Ecclesiastes 7.20, which says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. That's a succinct statement, isn't it? Surely there is no man, not a righteous man, on earth who does good and never sins. You know, when someone suggests to you that Mankind is not as bad as they seem. You tell them this verse. You show them this passage. This is an evangelistic opportunity, isn't it? Show them that none is righteous. No, not one. As J.I. Packer once wrote, No one is as bad as he or she might be, but no action of ours is as good as it should be. That's right. Or we may not be as bad as we otherwise could be, and that because of the restraining power of God the Holy Spirit, but no man is as good as he should be. No Jew, no Gentile can claim somehow and in some way that they are exempt from this universal category. All have been plunged into the deadly current for which no one will survive apart from God's very intervention. Verses 13 and 14. They zero in, not just on the characteristic nature of depravity, but on the very words of mankind. Notice it. It affects their very speech. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Psalm 5.9 is where Paul takes the first Two lines of verse 13, Psalm 5:9 says it this way, "For there is no truth in their mouth, their inmost self is destruction. their throat is an open grave, they flatter with their tongue. We read that for our scripture reading didn't we? And you know speaking about someone's throat as is, is an open grave is not very flattering, is it? What do you think of when you think of a grave? Death Death This is talking about someone's words being like death. What he's saying is that sinful man's throat is characteristically deadly. Deadly. And he goes on to quote Psalm one o excuse me, Psalm one hundred forty verse three, when he speaks about mankind's lips as a serpent's poison poison. Psalm 140 verse 3 says, they make their tongue sharp as a serpent's and under their lips is the venom of asps. What's an asp? It's a small but deadly poisonous snake in Africa. And he says a man's very lips are likened to a small venomous snake who strikes with a deadly poison. I just recently, as you know, went to South Africa and I saw many animals. I didn't see snakes, but I know they're there. I know they're there. And can you imagine as we did going out on one of these game preserves and just walking around? Obviously, we were in the protection of a vehicle. And in fact, in one place, one of my other compatriots from California, Wanted to get just a little bit better picture. And so we stopped on the road and we saw some hyenas and jackals. And he opened his car door and he put one leg out to take just that perfect picture. And our host said, Bill, get back in the car. Why? Because those things can strike you at a moment's notice, pull you right out of that car, and we'd never see you again. And he did exactly as he was told. It's happened before. And can you imagine, without any transportation, without any protection whatsoever, going out into the wilderness of that area, or in Palestine, or in the wilderness area of Judea, and walking along and stepping on a venomous snake. That's what he's liking our lips to. Venomous poisoned. The pervasiveness of man's sin extends to his speech, which is used to spread venom to other people. What a word picture this conjures up in our mind. And with verse 14, Paul then quotes Psalm 10:7. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. Doesn't that remind you graphically of James' words in James chapter 3? Listen to it. The tongue is a fire. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, not members of the body, the members of our physical body. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. And that is talking about regenerate people. Christian people. Because unregenerate people don't bless our Lord and Father. Just imagine what unregenerate people are like in their sinful nature. Well, I guess you could. You were one. And so was I. We know what it's like. And even in our regenerate condition, One moment we're blessing God the Father, and the next we're cursing people. Unregenerate man, Paul says, is rotten to the very core, even down to his speech. It's all pervasive. Affecting, incidentally, notice, our throat, verse 13, our tongues, verse 13, our lips, verse 13, and our mouth, verse 14. That just about covers it all, doesn't it? Throat, tongues, lips, and mouth. He has us surrounded. And finally, in Paul's pervasiveness, this list of our sinful condition, he speaks of how sin affects our actions. Look at verse 17. Their feet are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. This is a full quotation, not of one of the psalms or a portion of a psalm, but this is from Isaiah 59, verses 7 and 8, which is speaking of wicked Israel. And this would have come right down upon the heads of the Israelites to whom Paul was speaking. Their feet run to evil, Isaiah says, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one treads on no one who treads on them knows peace. Paul is just conjuring up all of what he wants to say to them through the Old Testament Scriptures as it is written, he says, to describe total depravity. And it isn't simply what comes out of his mouth, Paul says, it's also what is exhibited through his actions. He's quick, he says first, to go about murdering. Their their feet are swift to shed blood. You remember our study of Proverbs 1? Verse 16 says, their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed blood. Look at verse 16 of Romans 3. In their paths are ruin and misery. This isn't talking about a person's own subjective misery here. It's talking about what sinners do to other sinners. They they put their lives in ruin and misery. It's what one unregenerate person does to another unregenerate person by their actions, by their words, by what they do. It puts that other person in ruin and misery. They inflict upon themselves ruin and misery. And verse 17's reference to the way peace is not, the way peace is referred to there is not intended To speak of our personal peace, like someone would say, well, I have a peace about it. That's not what this is saying at all. It's the fact that sinful man is violent. Violent, vengeful, not peaceful. The way of peace they have not known. Why? They don't live in peace. They live in violence. They live in hatred. They live in bloodshed. You say, everybody like that? Of course, not everybody. Remember... Sinful man, totally depraved, is not as worse as he could be at all points and in every way, and that only by the grace of God. But they could be. Do you imagine what our world is going to be like in the final day, in a day of tribulation, in a day of trouble, when there is the great conflagration, the great war? It may even be that the Holy Spirit's restraint is taken off, taken away. And there is this massive, incredible, unrelenting sinfulness foisted upon the earth. I don't even want to think about it. I don't even want to think about that. And maybe that capstone comment about the pervasiveness of sin in verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Psalm 36.1 may say it more fully, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart, there is no fear of God before his eyes. Transgression is woven deep within the heart, and that's why there is no fear of God before their eyes. Oh, beloved, sin is pervasive, layered, all the way from top to bottom. That's why he can pronounce all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. And then thirdly and lastly, he talks about the penalty. The pronouncement, the pervasiveness, and now the penalty of our sinful condition. Look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And this is, this is the capstone, not just on this passage, verses 9 to 20. This is the capstone on everything from chapter 1, verse 18, up to Verse 18 of chapter 3. This is absolutely the capstone of it all. This is the point to which he has been driving all along. And he concludes with this statement on the penalty of our sinful condition. He says, now we know. What does he mean? All that I've just quoted to you from these Old Testament Scriptures. Now we know. Including the Psalms including Isaiah. It's an indictment to those under the law. That's a reference to the Jews. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, the Jews. So that every Jew's mouth may be stopped. And through the law given to the Jews... There now is a condemnation on the whole world, that's Gentiles, so that they may be accountable to God. So he just wraps up the whole thing and says, Jews, they've been given the law of God and through them to the world, to the nations, and by that Gentiles are also condemned so that the whole world may be accountable to God. Everyone, Jew and Gentile, are brought before the divine bench and sentenced to accountability before a righteous and holy God. Douglas Moo, commentator on Romans, excellent commentary, mentions that the phrase, Every mouth may be stopped is the situation of a defendant who has no more to say in response to the charges brought against him or her. You stand before that judge, and he says, how do you plea? And the case has already been tried, it's been adjudicated, and you're standing there naked and ashamed with no response, no possibility of any kind of mitigating answer. And what's the only answer to give? Guilty, Your Honor. I'm guilty. There's nothing that I can say. He also suggests, does Moo, that the word accountable that's appearing there in verse 19, it's not used anywhere else in biblical Greek, but it is used in extra biblical Greek to mean answerable to or liable to prosecution. Here's how we might be able to paraphrase the sentence. God is the offended party. Man is the perpetrator of the crime. He's committed inexcusable offenses against this righteous God for which there is no defense and all therefore have become guilty and are now ready to be judged. The sentence has been given. Guilty. And he says there is no defense, verse 20, by works of the law. That is, by someone's effort to perfectly obey God's commandments. That's why James says, if you violate the law in one part, you're guilty of what? All. You're guilty of it all. The very first time you violate the very first commandment in thought, word, or deed, you're guilty of all. And then we live our lives long in that guilty condition. That's the sentence. No human being, he says, will be justified right standing with God in God's sight. Standing is not guilty. No one. Why? Because the law was not given to show me how much I can obey, but how much I cannot obey. It's my condition. The law just brings all of my sinfulness up to the very surface where it had been boiling below, and now the law just just tells me. We were on a junior high canoe trip over the weekend. If you saw my legs, you would readily attest to that. sunburned. And we were going down that Buffalo River, and then the next morning we went to Blanchard Springs Caverns. Have you ever been there? How many of you have been to Blanchard Springs Caverns? Boy, it's just a phenomenal experience, isn't it? And we went down there, and one of the things that the tour guide told us, very sweetly, but told us nonetheless, because you have, I don't know, I think it was about forty-nine junior hires, and I'm sure she was very, very nervous when she said, now we want to remind you." Please do not touch anything inside the cavern, because it's a very sensitive thing, and if people touch them, it would obviously upset the whole deal. Very, very sensitive. Even some of those stalactites that you might want to be tempted just to just to hit, just to see what would happen, just to see if it would come off. You just... Even in my own heart. I was thinking about it. Even while I was telling the kids, now don't do that. It was a temptation. And then at one point in the tour, they had what she termed temptation pass. Remember that, children? It was a very narrow passageway. And you were so close to both sides of that cavernous place. And it was so easy just to take your hands out of your pockets and just just touch it just a little bit. What does it feel like? Come to me, my precious. I want it. Just a little touch. Please. It won't harm anything, will it? And you know what? All of our kids did very well. You'd be very pleased. And your pastor did well also. (laughs) But you know, that's what the law does. The law tells you, don't Touch it. I know that you want to feel it, but don't do it. Don't go that way. Temptation pass. It's so easy, it's readily available. It's really not that bad. In fact, when they ask you not to touch it, they're withholding good from you, they're withholding a great experience. It's wrong for them to ask you not to touch that. Who do they think they are? And you can conjure up in your minds all kinds of reasons for which you would just grab one of those stalactites or those stalagmites, or when they come together they call them mighty tights. You just want to grab a hold of one of those and say, I did it. That's what he's saying here. Verse 20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. By the way, that word knowledge is not just I have a mental assent to the concept of sin. Knowledge there is I am experientially knowledgeable about sin. I know about sin. Why? Because of the law. And if I try to be justified, to be right with God, to stand in the upright before Him through works of the law, Paul says here, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. No flesh. What's the solution? Look at verse 28 of Romans 3. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. See, that's the answer. The answer is not to try to do it on your own. Let go of me. I can save myself. The river is not that steep. I know I'm floating down fast and furious, but leave me alone. I will do it myself absolutely imbecilic for a four-year-old boy to think or say or do that very thing. But is that not what we do? Is that not what we do? We say, God, I can handle it. You let go of me. Get your arm off of me. I will rescue myself through my works of the law. But through the law, that doesn't come salvation. It comes condemnation. Because I can't do it. As one writer rightly said, The law does not provide the ability to conquer sin, but reveals its presence. Oh, it's so true. It doesn't provide for me the ability to conquer sin. It just reveals the presence of sin in my life. I try and try and try, and what comes up is not the ability to conquer it, but more frustration and anger because my sin is being revealed to me ever further, ever higher, ever deeper, ever more ugly. We need to be justified by faith apart from the works of the law. As we close, listen to the wise words of James Montgomery Boyce. The doctrine of total depravity is hard for the human race to accept, of course, for one of the results of our being sinners is that we tend to treat sin lightly. Most people are willing to admit that they are not perfect. It takes an extraordinary supply of arrogance for any mere human being to pretend that he or she has no flaws. Generally, we do not do that. But this is far different from admitting that we are utterly depraved so far as our having any natural ability to please God is concerned. We are willing to admit that we are not perfect, but not that we are not righteous. We are willing to admit that there are things not known to us, but not that we are devoid of all spiritual understanding. We are willing to admit that we wander off the true path at times, but not that we are not even on the right path. Instead of of admitting that we are running away from God, we pretend that we are seeking Him. It is vitally important that we come to terms with this bad tendency to run from the truth about ourselves. Without an accurate knowledge of our sin, we will never come to know the meaning of God's grace. Without an awareness of our pride, we will never appreciate God's greatness, nor will we come to God for the healing we so desperately need. The situation is a bit like being sick and needing a doctor. As long as we are convinced we are well, or at least almost well, we will not seek medical care. But if we know we are spiritually sick, we will turn to the great physician, Jesus Christ, who alone Is able to heal us. Admit your sin to God today. Admit it today. If you've never done it before, admit it today. And He will be to you the great physician who heals you of your sin disease. Or if you prefer, as in my case, the one who rescues you from the raging river of death. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You that You have provided a way from our certain peril of death. You have given us the way and it is Jesus Christ who died for sinners like us and who can by Your grace See the outstretched arm of the righteous Lord who will give us a sure and safe rescue. O oh, Father, give us this Christ, this rescuer, so that He might extend His arm. And then in us, Lord, Open our eyes to see our true condition so that we might see that hand reaching to us. Open our eyes. Regenerate our hearts. Bring us to the place of true sight. And as we are going down that river of death, save us. Save me. Save them. Give us the ability through faith, by faith, to grasp that hand and be delivered. Oh God, make it so for the glory of your name in Jesus Christ. Amen.